0: Hi, this is Charlie, and uh, this is the podcast uh, To Hell and Back on uh, Wednesday, April 18th, 2018, again recording from my my little room here, a guest room in my house, <clears throat> where I get a good solid phone line. Um, and... Uh, I want to start with an announcement, uh, just very brief, uh, to uh, following up, having announced it before. But um, next week and the following week, on those Wednesdays, May 2nd. Is that right? Am I missing a week here? Anyway, it's a yeah. This is the 18th. Ah, so not next week. Yeah, next week I'll be out. There won't be one next week, but May 2nd and May 9th, uh, I'll be having a sort of a two hour conversation with Melanie Harned about, uh, her work in, uh, in treating PTSD with, within DBT and with prolonged exposure treatment and, uh, trying to cull lessons from those experiences and that treatment um, for all of us in our lives in coping with adversity um, and uh, I don't know all of what directions that'll go but it should be pretty interesting so I wanted to let you know about that um, okay and uh, you know how to how to access this uh, you must or you wouldn't be listening right now um, Today, I'm excited about today um, because in my work with DBT from the very beginning, which is about 1988 or so, uh, one of the things that has held me in it and one of the things that I think has made it uh, creative and, uh, and really useful in so many situations is the part that you call the dialectic or dialectics. The, one of the three paradigms, um, the dialectical paradigm. So we're going to get into that more today. And um, really the idea there is how would anyone in life, not just somebody who's in DBT treatment, but how did anyone in life benefit from having a dialectical perspective on their life uh, and on a particularly very challenging things that come up? Um, so, you know, this, this paradigm, which really grew out of, uh, the philosophy of dialectics, I mean, in terms of the, it's intellectual support is the philosophy of dialectics, which probably can be traced back, uh, at its earliest, probably to, uh, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, um, and even Socratic dialogue, a way of, um, fleshing out arguments had within it a kind of dialectical uh, approach and then Plato later developed it further and then um, hundreds and hundreds of years later um, Hegel took it further in his the philosophy of dialectics um, but now we're ahead of ourselves because where I want to start is where this approach fits into uh, the other two approaches in dbt and though you may think if you've listened to previous podcasts that you already know this you've covered it that's probably in some respect true but uh, i think it might just be helpful to put this all together now and then move into dialectics so here's how i want to do that by thinking um, let's say in your own life let's just use an example that uh, you are facing uh, your own depression or your own anxiety, your own grief, your own anger. Or let's say you're facing your own uh, child or sibling or parent who is uh, really stuck is not moving forward in their life and uh and and they're not handling things very well and you want to be helpful to them but it's really a tough one uh, or anything else you work have a job that you work in and you're very unhappy at your job and it's obvious to you what the problems are but you can't do much about them uh or you're in a group and it's very hard to resolve the problems in the group in other words all all possible stuck problems in your life but let's start with the one about, like, depression or anxiety or anger, some emotional um, and and physiological state, and you're really having trouble with that. I want to highlight that there really are, in these three paradigms, there are three different perspectives from which to approach the problem. Um, so the first perspective, as those of you who have done any listening to this or who know DBT at all would know, is uh, really a behavioral perspective on change on behavioral change and I think you might call it the problem-solving perspective Um, and that problem-solving perspective uh, always begins with and revolves around how do you get from point A to point B uh, how do you get from being depressed to being non-depressed or anxious to being not so anxious or angry to being not so angry or whatever it is? It's like, how do you resolve this and how do you, def- and, and it helps to define where you're headed, uh, and then, uh, work on that. I've talked about that in previous podcasts. So that would be a perspective on this. And let's say, uh, within a be- problem solving or behavioral change based perspective, you would want to figure out what is causing this depression or this anxiety or this anger and, and what is perpetuating it and what obstacles are there in the way of getting out of it. Um, and, uh, and in identifying those, trying to tackle any one of them or all of them, uh, physiologically with medication or with uh, behavioral activation getting somebody more active because uh, they've settled into a, a pattern of non-activity which is not bringing them in contact with any positive reinforcers in their life which is perpetuating the depression or maybe you're going to address the thinking that's going on in them because the underlying thought processes are pessimistic and hopeless and uh, generate depression or anxiety or anger, whatever it is, and um, or maybe you're just uh, trying to help a person encounter new situations uh, where they'll have new opportunities to uh, experience things. Um, and you're reinforcing them in going in these directions, this is a behavioral perspective. It's a problem-solving perspective. It's sort of the first perspective, you might say, in doing cognitive behavioral therapy. And and it's the first perspective a lot of us use in our lives in general, in fixing almost anything. So that would be one way to go. Um, now, another way to go uh, would be, a second way to go would be, let's say that isn't very helpful or you've Given some try to that and maybe you haven't exhausted all possibilities one never does really um, but you decide to move in a different direction and it is more the perspective of mindfulness the perspective of acceptance uh, the perspective of just being there rather than doing anything and it's sort of like put like imagining yourself being in the same room as your depression being in the same room as your anxiety and instead of fighting it and instead of trying to beat it beat it down or to change it you actually just take some time where you're just with it and you notice it and you allow yourself to see it and you allow yourself a brief period of time at least where you're just gonna be there and notice it and notice what it's made up of you're gonna you might say hold your depression mindfully you're gonna penetrate your depression with uh, awareness and and compassion and uh, and clarity about just seeing what it is that might not diminish the pain at all. Um, it could change somehow your relationship to the pain because you're not fighting it, beating it down, and trying to run away from it. But you're actually just being there with it, um, and uh, you're not welcoming it either. But you're just aware of it and with with a sense of lack of judgment. And that would be a mindful perspective and, you know, and one of the treatments for depression in the world that has a fair amount of evidence behind it, as many of you know, is mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which really is a synthesis of two of these, uh, of really a change-oriented perspective and, and embedded in uh, cognitive therapy and the acceptance-oriented perspective in mindfulness. And you, you know, you ap- approach your thinking and your emotions your experience with mindfulness on a regular basis and you start to notice when your thoughts are getting more pessimistic and it uh, it activates just some things in you some of which might be identifiable and some might not in which you just benefit from that you know you just benefit from noticing it and not running so hard away from it and uh, seeing it for what it is uh, and then you supplement that with also doing cognitive therapy about the thoughts that you've started to notice so there's these two approaches and then there's the dialectical um, perspective uh, and that perspective is one where um, you start to uh, notice that there uh that that your depression or your anxiety or your anger might represent a kind of a stuck situation inside yourself that results from um, a polarization like two opposing positions in you or an opposing position between you and something in the world like another person or possibilities. Like, for instance, it could be that you start to conceptualize that your depression is the result of um, having certain standards in your life and certain values that you want to live up to and you're not living up to them you're you're violating your own standards to such a degree that you are stuck you really don't uh, know what to do about it and you may end up depressed in that state Um, another one would be if you if you're somebody who really has been uh, has grown up in such a way that it's very important for you to have somebody that you're close to, somebody you're attached to, and you, uh, in a sense, need such a person in order to function reasonably well. And there isn't that person in your life at this point. Either you've lost such a person or you just don't have such a person. And so, it's a, again, it might result in a depression that looks similar and immobilizes you. Um but it might be based on a different opposition, the opposition between what your need or desire is for a, a relationship of a certain kind of attachment and and uh, and the absence of it, the fact that you're stuck you're pounding your head against the wall, and you end up depressed as a result of that, right? So the dialectical perspective, as I'll go into more later, is going to uh, start out by recognizing that there may be a blockade. Uh, between two forces inside yourself or between a force inside yourself and a force in someone else or in some situation and you're stuck and and you when you're stuck you could end up getting very anxious getting very depressed getting very angry you could end up with uh, psych with um, medical uh, or somatic symptoms um, but it represents a blockade and that perspective now might uh lead you to move in a in different directions uh not entirely because these things do overlap um so it it but you would be looking for ways to illuminate the conflict illuminate the tension uh, between two opposing forces you'd be looking for ways to validate uh Both sides of those forces, you know, validate the part of you that has certain high standards that you want to live up to, but also look for validation of the part of you, whatever reason it has come about, that you have violated your own standards. There probably were under certain pressures that you were alleviating by violating your own standards, but then you did that and you're stuck between the two. So um, that'd be another um, that that just be a way to do would be to look for uh, illuminating these uh, oppositions and finding the tension between them and seeing the, the in a way the wisdom on both sides and then seeing if you can move this deeper understanding move with this deeper understanding uh, not trying to reject part of yourself into a different solution a different and what's called a synthesis uh it's a different arrangement incorporating both sides and moving forward somehow so that would be uh, another way to go if you're dealing with a let's say a child of yours whether it's a child child uh, adolescent child or an adult child that is really stuck and you as a result feel stuck because you care so deeply and you want things to move forward for this person, but they're not moving forward in their own life. They're not doing anything. It's what, you know, what would be, there'd be a problem solving perspective of trying to understand the causal factors that have led them into this state. And you might start thinking, well, this has to do with their thinking. And you might be trying to address the nature of their thoughts, which are keeping them stuck and not able to get out and and move forward in their lives. Uh, It might be that they're not getting much reinforcement for moving forward in their lives or in the right way. And that's another behavioral point of view. It might be that they have gotten stuck because they don't feel safe and they've just confined themselves into a little cocoon. And they are stuck because nothing feels safe outside that cocoon. And therefore, you might start thinking, well, how can we move them out of the cocoon and desensitize to the world? Um, and teach them to do things to get there. So all of that would be a behavioral perspective, a problem-solving. You might move in with a mindfulness perspective where you actually just decide, you know what, I'm going to give up trying to push for change. I'm just going to be there. I'm going to keep relating to my child, keep interjecting myself, but as non-intrusively as possible, and just be present and not try to push for any change. Not have my child be thinking that I'm entering his room or I'm talking with him because I'm going to sneak in some change-oriented comment or strategy. No, I'm just going to be like, what is it like to be with with him or her or to be him or her and just establish a new relationship to that so-called problem? Um, and just it, because it's possible that that very change in you could result in a change in the other person that you're worried about uh, who actually has not felt very good about you trying to change him all the time. So, um, And it also would just be allow you to open your mind up to uh, a broader array of forces around the situation so that you may discover something, you may understand something, You may convey your understanding to him or her in a validating sort of way that actually makes a difference. So there is the mindfulness approach, and then there's the dialectical approach, which is uh, to realize that you are in a transaction with this person, and this person is in a transaction with other things and people. And you might start examining the nature of that transaction and think about what might make a difference, what might move things, uh, by having a, a broader and deeper understanding of the transactions that are informing this dialectical stuckness between two opposing forces, um, and I won't get into more of that right now because that's what most of this is going to be about as I continue. Um, so that's a that's a, a certain amount about um, three ways. I mean, I I come back to this more and more in my own thinking. Of course, I've been doing. Therapy with people for a long time, where I think of these. I wrote a book where I think about these uh, different three different perspectives. But I've been applying it more and more in just my everyday life, and thinking about other people I know and their everyday lives, and realizing, no, this is really a helpful thing if you can really get clear about it and concrete about it. That there, it opens up. It isn't that each one of these has totally non-overlapping uh, maneuvers with the other ones. Um, they do overlap, but but each one has a unique perspective. It's a different perspective, and it does open up some other doors that the other ones don't open. In other words, each of these perspectives is missing something, and the others have some of what's missing. So the three of them together really them in themselves represent a synthesis of different points of view about how to go about change. Um, and I'm trying to work towards a synthesis of these of these. right deep breath literally I should pause sometimes and just take a breath because these hours I just I talk 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 ah that's what I'm going to do I'm going to take about three breaths and you can do the same thing okay good i found that a little helpful a little restoring um you know i last week uh i was teaching as i have done many times the last three years in italy and i always have an interpreter uh, who speaks in italian after i speak a few sentences in english and i pause while she speaks in italian and at first I thought, oh, this is going to be a problem. It's going to take so much time. I'll never get to teach uh, any, any very much. Um, it has not worked out that way. Um, it really turns out to be an interesting thing to do, to pause after each kind of, I don't know, in your mind, each paragraph or each phrase or each thought that you're having, to say it and then pause while while it's being interpreted in another language and then say the next thing it does something it rearranges the mind after you've said one thought and i think it actually makes it possible to teach uh with uh, more depth more feeling and uh, more concisely at different points <laughs> and be less tired at the end so i haven't been brave enough or strong enough to Totally incorporate that into my teaching in English but uh, I've definitely moved in that direction okay this next segment you might say is on the dialectical perspective um, because it really is a different perspective it comes from a different place and it really makes a lot of sense once you start thinking about it so let me just say first a bunch of uh, characteristics of uh, the dialectical perspective and, uh, of course, this is going to, I will probably use a couple examples as I go through to illuminate some things about this perspective. But after I'm done going over the perspective, I'm going to get into more practical uh, implications of this perspective. But so the first part of this perspective is to realize that from this point of view, reality is made up of opposing forces everywhere. Now, to me, I'm not a philosopher, and I know people argue these things very deeply, so I can't weigh in on this question. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that absolutely every single thing, every thought, every feeling, every material thing in the universe is uh, is part of an opposition. I, I'm less interested in that. But a lot of opposition exists, and a lot of forces that oppose each other or partially oppose each other. And that's what this idea comes from, is that opposition is just everywhere. And, you know, we do know a lot of things that instruct us about this. One is that in uh, physics, one of the basic laws that every action uh, causes an equal and opposite reaction. Every vector forward is going to cause something to push back, push backward. Um, and that that's really uh, important in many, many ways. Um at every level of of our systems our biological systems our psychological systems our social systems and so on uh, at every system level there's lots of opposites that collide to the point that it does make it think make you think this is actually the fundamental nature of the universe in terms of information in terms of matter in terms of energy i mean there is positive and negative matter that's been identified there are positive and negative particles and subparticles. There are electrons and protons in every atom, um, uh, every element, um, and they oppose each other, and that causes dynamics, uh, the way a positive and negative pole of a magnet cause. Uh, there are a poise, opposing points of view in, in probably within each of us. That when we state one point of view, we often are leaving out part of what we think. We can't say everything at once, and there's another point of view that's being left out. And we might then come back and say, well, and in addition here, I also think such and such, or, or I think this, but I also think that. Um, or you bring up something, and somebody else that hears you reacts to it and brings up the opposite or something else. Um, it happens in families. It happens in in a grand scale way in war, um, where people have fundamentally different conceptions of of themselves and the people that they're at war with. Usually, each side thinking that they are a victim of the other side, um, and um, in society and in you know almost every topic that comes up. Uh, is controversial you know should there be separate bathrooms for people with transgender uh, should they be called different names um, there's racial issues there's uh, issues of uh, rich and poor um, um, being a good person but being a very uh, forceful person who brings about change there's just everywhere constantly I mean and I'll just one example of this was I spent years as a consultant in a Tavistock-type uh, group relations conferences uh, where where a lot of people come together for a number of days in order to go through various exercises and study the dynamics in groups and organizations and leadership. And it was really interesting. And uh, one of the things that I would do would be a consultant to small groups so a small group would gather of people who don't yet really know each other and maybe 6, 8, 10, 12 people in a room sit around in a circle and I'm their consultant to try to help them accomplish their task. And their task is to um, interact with each other in such a way that they um, learn more about processes that uh, uh, create dynamics and forces and uh, things in groups. In small groups um, and they're not given any more explicit instruction but here's what happens it's just sort of like a picture of uh, of, uh, of these kind of dialectical dynamics of one thing opposing another and brings out the next opposition which out brings out the next opposition and you just watch the formation of the group goes this way because somebody says something like oh well um, My name's John, and um, someone else says, I don't know that we need to introduce ourselves. And already you've got an opposition. Um, And so, well, I I I think it'd be good to know each other's names. And this other person says, well, I think that actually what that does is it makes us focus in on the individuals. Maybe we should all just give ourselves numbers. Think, oh, my God, you're already deep into uh, an opposition, but these things happen. And then someone else says, you know, I think we should, don't you think we should close the door now because we don't want to make it seem like other people can now come in? I mean, I don't think we're really a group until we've closed the door and we've determined our membership. And someone else says, I don't really want to be in that kind of group. I want to be in an open group where things can change and people can change and those people get into something and then people line up on opposite sides or or on both sides of that particular fence and someone else says should we i think we should have a leader and i think uh, george over there should be the leader he seems like a leaderly type and some you can just tell two two people bristle and one of them says um, i really am against having a leader in a group there's been so many leaders and we don't even know what we're doing yet so how do we have a leader And someone else says, you know, and if you're talking about leadership, I don't know why you automatically thought of a man when we've got just as many women in this room as men. I mean, it just seems automatic. And then this gets going. And I I could go on and on because that's just the nature of these groups, is that if you don't have structures and routines and rituals that define what to do next, the group sort of falls into um, these opposing forces, one after another and so you kind of see that yeah this is pretty fundamental to being a human being um, that these things uh, that, that one statement uh, brings about uh, an opposing statement um, and you know and so I would say about all of this pro- these processes that go on everywhere all the time many of them under wraps or many of them sort of in structures so you can't quite see them um, That it's not really a problem in itself. It's the nature. It's probably the nature of reality. It's the nature of change. It's the nature of evolution. Evolution happened this way: is that when one position is taken, let's call it. I mean, in like in the philosophy, is the thesis um, that that then leaves out something, and that something is picked up and comes back at the original statement or original proposition, the thesis, and it's an antithesis or antithesis. Now you have the existence of a thesis as an antithesis that are opposing one another, right? And this could be in many different forms, as we'll get into. And the thesis plus the antithesis is sort of like saying the old plus the new. The original statement plus the opposing secondary statement They now form a couple, you might say, and that couple now um, moves on and given a little time and space, um, you know, they're going to form some kind of a mixture with each other unless they just depart uh, or go separate ways. But if they're in at all the same interactive framework, you're now going to have a thesis and an antithesis each influencing the other one until possibly they form a conglomerate that you might consider to be the synthesis of the two. Um, so thesis plus antithesis uh, moves on to a synthesis that incorporates features of both, and ideally the, the valid, the lasting, the wisest features of both, though it just doesn't always work that way. So, you know, opposition is not something to be feared. That's something that can be learned out of this, is that uh, some of us are raised in such a way, in such a household, that we're afraid of conflict, and we're afraid of opposition. And so we become sort of just, you know, we try to please people, or we try to agree with people, or things like that. And it, it, it disguises, in fact, that there's more opposition than meets the eye. Um, but if you can take this, dialectical point of view and accept that this is the nature of reality, um, then you might get a little more comfortable and relaxed facing opposition, saying, ah, oh well, of course I said this, and the person who I'm talking to said the opposite, or they, they pointed out a, a hole in my argument. It's like, that's that's the nature of reality. People do that. Some people get more polite, and some people get less polite. But basically, you might say, as Thich Han might say, Ah, here is opposition, my old friend, my old friend opposition. Oh, good. Here we are again. And uh, that can be very helpful if you're uh, dealing with other human beings, <laughs> which we all are. Uh, and it's certainly helpful in being a psychotherapist, dealing with people who've had very difficult uh, upbringings uh, where they do get stuck in black and white thinking. And, of course, we get in, in our own is that if you get into an opposition it's like all right all right this is the nature of reality okay i can i can be with this um, then you then you have to find ways to be with it um, so anyway that's how things evolve so that's the first uh, big idea um, i want to share with you an analogy i've I shared it in my book if anybody's read that uh in the chapter on dialectical philosophy or dialectics that you know, one of the best metaphors that I've had in my own life for this is uh, um, a, log, a log jam, um, the way that logs are logged during one time a year. Then it gets to be winter time, and they're in the mountains, and they're in the forest, and the trees have been cut down, but now they can't be really moved on to the river because they're stuck in the snow and the ice. And then spring comes, and the thaw comes, and the water starts flowing. And now it's possible to get the logs into the river. And the problem is that you get so many logs in the river at once that they jam up, and they can't go downriver. They block each other. You create a log jam. And they can't get down to where they would be processed, in a mill or something. So um, there are people, including my cousin, one of my cousins, who uh, have uh, jobs uh, running around on these logs and getting them to move <laughs> and to me that's the perfect thing of what captures what a dialectical approach to something is you've got things that won't flow you've got things that will that are stuck and they're stuck because their forces are opposing each other you've got too many at once and they're all jammed together and it isn't like there's nothing happening there there's a lot happening there water is flowing by underneath uh, or down the mountainside, and things are melting, and things are trying to move, and they are totally stuck for obvious reasons. And so the jo- the job of the of the river runner, it's called, with a certain instrument, um, which was uh, I don't know called a peavey, um, is you to run around on the logs very delicately because you don't want to step between two logs and go down and get slammed between two logs, but you. Push the logs apart a little bit here and there. You just nudge them and uh, you get really good at diagnosing, you know, where are the forces among these logs? And what if I just push this one? A whole bunch of them might start flowing. So the log jam is a perfect analogy that many times symptomatology in our lives and pain in our lives is because of a log jam, psychological log jam or even a physical log jam. And we have trouble with that. But if we step back and we take an instrument like the PV, but it's a psychological instrument of dialectics, and we just start thinking, wait a minute, things are colliding. Things are stuck because they're pushing against each other. So you want to diagnose what is pushing against each other and then see if you can nudge them a little bit. I mean, if you just sort of sit back, it might be over time they're going to take care of themselves. A the synthesis will evolve. Things will start to flow. But maybe you want to nudge it along, and so you might want to have an understanding of how this works. Um, so let me say some more about this. When you have opposites that are left to themselves uh, in within a certain field or domain, um, and we'll get into concretes, You know, they will evolve by reacting to each other. Uh, They can't not affect each other. I mean, if you have a, a horse that's been so dangerous to human beings that it's in a corral by itself, and it's scared of humans, and it kicks at humans, and it, you know, has nearly killed humans, then nobody gets in the corral. You've got a stuck situation here because there's no way to move that forward. I mean, you and you don't want to end up having to put the horse down, um, and so you bring a consultant. And what does the consultant do if they're really good? They get into the corral far from the horse, facing away from the horse, um, knowing that the second they step inside that fence, they have changed things. They've changed things for the horse. They've certainly changed things for themselves. They've created a transaction between the horse and themselves that's going to be very important now, what happens in that transaction. So they're smart, so they stay far away from the horse, and they look away from the horse so that they don't scare the horse. The horse still is scared because the horse notices absolutely everything about this person who's now inside the territory, and now that they're both within the same field, they're reacting to each other, and some sort of synthesis starts to happen. And it isn't like you know ahead of time with a given horse, just like you don't with a given person, uh, how to be with that person. Uh, but you find a way to be with that horse in a way that's non-dangerous, if possible. I mean, this is a lot about the, the behind the concepts of civil disobedience and nonviolent civil disobedience, like, uh, that Gandhi would, uh, preach and that Martin Luther King would preach is really how do you be where there's stuckness and you insert yourself non invasively but present and you do change everything by doing that just by being there. Uh, you arouse things, you cause things to happen and, uh, and that really starts to change everything, but in a nonviolent way. Um, so it's the same idea here. That's a, a, an application of dialect of a dialectical philosophy. There, um, you know. So even if one entity wins out over another one, when there's an opposition, and it looks like, oh well, no synthesis happened here because one just eliminated the other one. You know, if you look carefully, you often find that actually the one that eliminated the other one has been changed by the other one. Um, And so now you have a a new situation because this this winner, so to speak, has now won against a certain loser and has probably incorporated something from the transaction between the two. Um, And I'm not saying that that's a desirable outcome in some situations, but just to recognize that... If you allow two opposing forces, two opposing bits of information, two opposing individual behavioral patterns uh, with each other and allow them and without doing anything further than just bringing them together and allowing them to be together with some time and some space, you will see a certain kind of mixing, a certain kind of transaction that will change both parties and change the overall transaction so already that you just see it, it dialectics is not something human beings bring about it's part of how the world changes you put two chemical compounds in a same container you don't know how they might interact unless you already know in advance but you know they might become just a mixture like oil and water where they sort of are separate from each other but they have now affected each other uh, they might destroy one another, but now they've changed. One has changed the other for sure, or that might result in a brand new compound, which is easier to call a synthesis because it incorporates elements of both, and you can see the elements of both in it, perhaps. Um, so, so just continuing on these, um, the concept of the uh, the perspective. There are two additional factors. That expand the concept and usefulness of dialectical nature. One is what you might call either holistic thinking, systemic thinking, or focusing on context or something like that, because whatever is the opposition between two entities, let's just call it, taking place somewhere, they are taking place within a context. Uh, they can't be in a complete non-context, so they are within a context and other factors or other entities within those contexts uh, are interrelated to them, so they're systemically interrelated. Um, they affect each other. They're interdependent. They're interlocking. You have one member of a family changes. Uh, it changes everybody. It changes the whole of the family. And it changes everyone in that whole of the family, so that there's no way around it. I mean uh, y- it just does that in a relationship. If one person changes, the other person changes, and the thing as a whole changes. and that's what's really meant by systemic thinking um, that y- that you are you are you are with, every one of us and every entity is within a, within larger systems, whether it's a family, whether it's a society, a community, a school. A relationship, a set of relationships, or even physical context. Um, You can change everything by changing where you are located with the opposition that you're engaged with. Um, It's different to have a fight in the middle of a basement than a fight out in a, a wide open field. It just totally changes the context. It changes both parties in ways that might be somewhat unpredictable. But it does mean if you start thinking systemically about oppositions and things that are stuck, where there's immovable tensions, you start to realize, wait a minute, this stuckness seems like there's no solution seems like it's just completely stuck and in thinking that way you're you're giving into a narrowing of your understanding of what all is involved of what all is involved so that if you keep in mind the systemic relationships you start to realize there's a way bigger way to understand what might be part of this situation and what might be part of the solution so that, of course, that's exploited all the time in family therapy when somebody presents as the identified patient. And then when you treat that family, you might not even talk to the identified patient. You might have nothing to do with them in a sense. You might talk to other people who, are, who don't appear to be that and then who don't appear to be the identified patient. And then it changes everything, including the identified patient. Some of you may have read my book or, or been at a training of mine or something, but because uh, a very stunning example of this was when a famous family therapist, Carl Whitaker, uh, was doing a demonstration interview in Connecticut that I went to a long time ago. I used to go each year and see him present. And he was meeting with a family of uh, two uh, grown men and two grown women. And he was meeting with them because the, one of the women was hospitalized there at this place, a uh, psychiatric hospital, um, and she was considered to be depressed, though it wasn't clear what was going on because she wouldn't talk. Wouldn't talk or didn't talk. They didn't understand why is she not talking, and it went on for a couple months. And they just weren't making any progress. It was totally stuck, you might say, in that their goal they, you know, they had a destination, and their problem-solving goal was to get her to be engaged in conversation, which she had been able to do most of her life. Um, but it wasn't happening, so when Carl Whitaker came, they decided to have him meet with this family of these four siblings, and he met with them up on stage in front of 300-plus people, and he never spoke directly to the person at the beginning, to the person who was the identified patient, the woman uh... instead he spoke to one of the brothers and he says to one of the brothers uh, hey uh, do you think you can get anything out of a family session here uh, for, or family therapy something for your own life and he said well i'm here for my sister i'm not here for me and and whitaker said but i mean really i mean couldn't you get something for your own life is your own life perfect well it's not perfect but i have a pretty good life and i just feel terrible for my sister i'm here for my sister Whitaker wasn't letting him off the hook, and he kept saying, no, there must be something that if you were in family therapy, you know, it's amazing what can change. And the guy says no and started to get annoyed at him. And Whitaker said, well, actually, um, what I have in mind is something like, you know, you seem a little overweight. You know, you got a little sort of like a tire around your belly. And, oh, my God, this guy was so mad and he was so embarrassed. And Whitaker said, uh, you know, and I just thought maybe if you, uh, that could be a problem if, if because maybe you also have that kind of a fat layer around your heart and it could shorten your life. So maybe for a longer life, it'd be worth it to be in a family therapy. And the guy, would, it looked like he was ready to get up and go over and beat the crap out of Whitaker. Whitaker stopped then and apologized. I'm really sorry. I just I'm trying to explore this. He goes to the next brother, who's a sort of a tall, thin, rail looking guy, and Whitaker talks to him in the same way and says, Do you think you could get something out of this if we have family meetings or something? And the guy says, No, I, I really am fine. Um and uh support my brother. Uh I I'm here for with my for my sister blah 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 and Whitaker pushes it uh, back and forth a little bit until he finally says a similar thing to him says you know but because it strikes me that you're kind of stiff as a person you seem a little rigid a little controlling a little stiff and I just thought well maybe you're not having as much fun as one could have in life and maybe being in family therapy you know could really help you liberate yourself and you'll have more fun at this point, the two sisters, especially the one who's the patient, starts laughing uncontrollably, like laughing to the point of crying. And, the, and then she, um, and, and after that goes on for a while, and Whitaker's just sitting there, and he says to her, well, what, what's going on? he looks to the two sisters, and the one that hasn't spoken for months, supposedly, says, oh my God, this is just so funny, I cannot believe what you just said to our brothers. Because that's exactly what we used to, what my sister and I used to say to them, when they were, when we were all younger, is we would make fun of him for being overweight and him for being stiff. It's unbelievable that you just said those things. It's so funny. And both sisters start laughing again. And Whitaker says it seems like the two of you have a very nice relationship. And then the one who's the patient says, "Well, we we have had a nice relationship." And he says, "Why? well, why do you put it that way? You don't have one now? And she said, well, ever since my sister started having children, it's like she's not had any time for me, and things its just disappeared. You could tell she was sad about it and maybe a little resentful about it. And um, he talks with them a little bit about their relationship, and then he ends up recommending that the two of them be hospitalized together uh, in order to uh, rekindle their earlier relationship in their life away from the children. And, uh, it was just a stunning, uh, the, to me that a story like that captures so much about what dialectics is about, is that, uh, it was systemic. He was intervening and he did not know where things were going to go. He wasn't some genius that understands that if he does this, then that'll happen. He just knows that he's shaking, he's shaking up this otherwise stuck situation. He's nudging it in different directions and then he's going to find out what comes out, the way that my cousin might have pushed a log this way and pushed a log that way on the river, not knowing for sure what kind of forces are, are there that he's going to uh, to be able to capitalize on or unleash or find coming right at him. So I think with that kind of thing, it's, it's sort of something that we often don't take advantage of in our, in our own lives is we try to solve problems, try to solve problems with ourselves, with our spouses, with our kids, with our dogs, with our everything, our jobs, But actually, sometimes the solution might involve stepping back and thinking of the larger context and thinking, you know, maybe I'll go do such and such with so-and-so who's another person in the system, and everything changes, and sometimes you don't know in advance. So that's just another factor uh, that expands the concept of, um, I mean, the basic concept of dialectics is about, thesis versus antithesis, and then evolving towards synthesis as a way that change comes about. But this, uh, it happens in a context in sets of systems that gives you sort of more avenues for understanding and intervention. And the other thing that's part of it, and it's really one of the fundamental qualities of dialectics, and it helps understand this, is that Things are always moving. Things are always, 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 always moving. And why is that so important to say? Because we so often automatically think they aren't. We think that if this is this way, it's going to be this way forever. You have a child that is not doing what they should be doing about cleaning up their bedroom and your where's your thought go? This person will never be able to take care of himself or herself. And sometimes there's more evidence of that than other times. But even then, you don't know what's going to happen in someone's life. And you start to get stuck with thinking that things are static, that things are stuck, that things won't change. Or that, you know, and and you think that the way things are now is how they always will be. And because of that, it also makes you think you should perpetuate all those things that are good and hang on to them, and cling to them, and push away the ones that aren't so good, whereas, in fact, it's going to flow anyway. It's just going to make you suffer more. You know, there's going to be good days, bad days, good times, bad times, ups and downs in every area. So the idea that things are always moving is something worth accepting, painfully sometimes, because sometimes things are pretty good, and you it's hard to accept that they aren't going to always remain good. Um. <laughs> But it also helps to to highlight that every given moment is precious and special and unique and different. And so why not just get engaged in this moment? You know, rather than being, let's say, with your children, very concerned about their future, and that is really sort of understandable, but you're also, it's hard for you to know what's going to evolve. How about just being with your child now? in the moment doing this that or the other i mean i try to work on this i'm saying these things as if oh i'm some done deal i've really figured this out but actually i work on these things um and they don't always happen that way and it's, and i can forget that i can forget that things are constantly changing and that this moment is precious um and that the transaction between me and my wife my children my colleagues my patients and me my friends uh, that it's always changing. It's always, 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 always changing. And uh, that also, when things aren't going well, can give you a sense of hope and possibility uh, that that is different than what you've started to feel as you start to feel like things are hopeless. Um, so it can promote a kind of uh, uh, optimism. Next, okay, we have 10 minutes. I want to talk about facilitating dialectical processes when... Things are stuck in your life and change is desired and how a dialectical perspective about this that I've just been sharing with you about thesis, antithesis, synthesis, opposition, stuckness, um, context, systemic thinking, transactional thinking, <laughs> and awareness of constant change, that this is basically what we're talking about with a dialectical perspective So what are the steps you might take if you're really stuck? Well, one thing would be to recognize the nature of the tension, the nature of the opposing forces. That's like the first thing to do if you're going to think dialectically is to think, okay, what is opposing what here? Is it an idea, opposing an idea, a person opposing a person, (laughs) um, a habit pattern opposing some other way to be that you wish you could be? And the next step is to start to let yourself see That both sides of this opposition have validity of some kind or other. It might be historical validity. It might be that you just have to take into account that, um, (coughs) each, (coughs) excuse me, each side has come into being for a set of reasons and a set of forces and they are what they are because of how things have been. And you have to really take that into account. And there's validity, you might say, even wisdom, you might even call it. On both sides, and maybe if you assume <laughs> and that's true of each side, and therefore you have respect for each side, even though there's one side you side with, it might even be you—it's you versus something else. I'm sorry, I've had a cold, and my now I've been talking so much, my throat's tickling. Um, next thing you can do is elaborate on both sides, each position, finding the validity of both positions. Fleshing out the details of both positions. I mean, you may be at odds with someone in your life. (laughs) Really upset with them. They won't move. You blame them for it. It's sort of natural. We all end up in those positions sometimes. But how radically it can change things. If you just enter into your next transaction with that person saying, you know, I haven't been giving your point of view enough consideration. And I think it's leading to more trouble, so actually, actually, I'd just like to hear if you would be willing to just tell me how you think about this. I'm not going to oppose it, I just want to get it. I want to get it. I've got to get this because I already know what I think, and it it's different than what I think you think, but I don't know for sure where you're coming from or why you think what you think and so you're really inviting that person to come and you're fleshing it out and you're giving validity to their side. And, uh, that doesn't mean you're going to agree with them. It doesn't mean you're going to approve of what they're saying, but it does mean that you're changing the nature of the transaction so that both sides are valuable. And then you want to, then you can move from there (laughs) towards, um, the next move. Um, yeah like i say this is sometimes when you are in at odds with with uh, somebody else um and other times it's when you see two people at odds with each other like if you're trying to help two people get along or resolve something in a relationship um you try to you can try to um, see the wisdom on both sides now The next thing I want you to hear, because it's not what's usually taught necessarily, but to me it's one of the most important things about how to be dialectical, which is basically how to do nothing. How once you've identified the opposing forces, whether it's between you and someone else or two other parties, that you just identify it, you try to elevate both sides, you try to find the validity on both sides, (coughs) That plants a certain seed of a new kind of transaction. And then you just stay there and you don't try to push for anything. You don't try to make somebody do something. You don't try to say what you think is the better thing to do. You're just there. You're sort of mindful and you're patient and you realize that you've already done a very big thing in trying to find the validity on both sides. Once you do that and then you just let go. I mean, by letting go, I don't mean you run away from it. But you, I think you understood what I said. You stay with it, but you don't push any further. You know, you <clears throat> you now have created the uh, possibility <coughs> of the system changing without you having to do any klutzy maneuvers. Um, wish I had time to share more examples with you. Um. I'm not, and then the next time I'm talking on this, it's going to be different. I may write a blog post on my website charlieswenson.com about this because I wanted to explain a couple more things. I, I mean, I, I think the first approach is to try to just allow things to change right before your eyes or inside you. Just allow it requires patience it requires planting seeds and letting it be for a while if you can depends on the nature of the circumstance um, the next thing would be if it's not moving along or not moving at a way that's visible or not moving at a way that has any speed to it and you're worried about something you know you could consider with the least possible force necessary not nud- nudging it a little bit being uh, making some statement um, Having, doing something <coughs> that pushes things along you might highlight how you want to accept something exactly as it is and it has to change that would be one fundamental type of dialectical approach in dbt is acceptance plus change at the same time uh, you might push for change um more than that and but just <coughs> accepting the reactions to that um you might need to step it up and actually disrupt the current uh, equilibrium if it's not working and it's really s- stuck. And this is where Linehan's uh, dialectical strategies come in. I'm sure I'm going to come back to this topic, but <coughs> where you highlight that this bad situation actually has a good edge to it. It we'll would make lemonade out of lemons. And just looking at it that way, if you stick with that for a while, changes things in itself. Uh, Or you go further than the person who's taking the opposing position, and you take their position with them, and you take it even further than they intended. So the person who wants you to do something for them, and they're pissed off because you didn't uh, make their dinner last night, you know, there's all kinds of approaches, but one would be to take it even further than that and then do uh, 15 things for them, which which they actually are not that happy with because they're it went too far. It took them further than they meant. They just wanted dinner last night, supposedly, but they, they do it all the time like that, and you can't get them to stop sort of complaining about that and doing something. And you might just say, okay, I'm going to flip over on the other side, and it changes the dynamic. You might say, I'm going to clean your room. I'm going to make all of your meals. I'm going to send you to out of the house with lunch. Um, what else do you need? And you've probably pushed it further than they're comfortable with, and then they're going to push back. But they're going to push back from a different angle, and now you've got a new situation. So you got to have some patience. You've got to nudge a little bit, and then there are ways to disrupt the equilibrium. And the next thing to disrupt this equilibrium is it's time to stop. Uh, I've, I'm in the final minute. So um, as usual, when I'm talking about something I'm excited about, um, I didn't get everything in. But then that's the nature of me and, and um, uh, an opposition I'm always dealing with. So I hope uh, that there is something helpful about this and that I can take it further in either a blog post or another uh, podcast but two weeks from now, I'll be uh, talking with Melanie Harnett about, uh, about, uh, dealing with trauma in life and PTSD and what are the lessons from that. So, I look forward to doing that and I hope you all find that interesting too. Okay? Write me if you'd like, uh, through my website, charlieswenson.com or on c.robert.swenson.com at gmail.com. Let me know anything. You have a reaction to these things, any question about what I've said, or any question about other things that I might talk about. Okay. Bye-bye.